This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, it's just you and me, Marion, and we're talking about how we report on our lives when we write memoir. You've done it, and I've done it, and I think we've got some solid tips here for anyone interested in writing about what they know. the other day that mm-hmm. I, I once I once took someone to a baseball game in New York City who was from Switzerland and I was explaining things like the infield fly rule and designated hitter rule. We were at about the eighth inning and he turns to me and he says, but Marion, what's a base? So <laughs> in other words, I had neglected to explain the, the basics. basics. Right. So one of the things I think people want to hear stories about is, Mm -hmm. do you remember that when you're writing memoir? Boy, do you have an amazing memory, people say to me sometimes. And I say, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I forgot to explain the basics to you. Yeah. I don't, in fact. What I do is a lot of reporting. And everyone's really surprised to hear that in memoir. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. How did you do your reporting on your your first memoir about your mother and Alzheimer's? How did you... Because she had passed when you wrote the book, correct? No, she was. When I wrote the book, I was actively living and what I what I call writing in real time. The worst mm-hmm. possible circumstances. My Very father had just do. died. I'm 26 years old. She's in her early 50s. She's got Alzheimer's disease. We're trying to afford her care, live with her for the first seven years of the illness wow. until at 56, she went into a nursing home. So mm. I'm taking notes to write a piece in the New York Times Magazine that appeared that started my first book. And I'm doing a lot of reporting for that because I'm a very, very young person at the New York Times at the time. And I'm interviewing brain scientists and and, and that. That's a different kind of reporting. Um, Let me ask you, was your mom... uh, uh, viable with her memory to, were you able to ask her questions? Not within the first few years, not by the time I sat down to write it. By the time I had published the the book, she didn't know who I was. Oh, yeah. And so a a really vital source was lost to me. And I was just at the age, maybe you were like this too at 26 years old, I hadn't paid a bit of attention to my parents. It's not like I'd written down my parents' life stories. (laughs) Except all the therapy hours that I put against it. But beyond that, yeah. Right. I wasn't in therapy. Well, actually I was. But anyway, that's a different story. Now, David, don't That's another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Writers and therapy. Boy, that'll blow up the internet. Anyway, so I, I, I needed to... Uh, kind of reconstruct her life so you could fall in love with her before I took her away. Exactly. And that is a 
whopper of an assignment. And it has nothing to do with memory. It has everything to do with interviewing the people who knew her. So I made a list of her friends and her friends told me stories. And so that's how it started. So can I give you an example? Can I? Absolutely, please. So for instance, my sister and I had a very different experience with my mother's Alzheimer's disease. My mother was my best friend. She was my sailing partner. She was my tennis partner. We did, we lived together. We did things together. I was still very young when she Mm -hmm. got sick. And so I was unable to cope. I just fell apart completely when she got diagnosed. My sister, who didn't much like my mother, was able to move home, take care of everything, make spreadsheets, get the damn job done. And I couldn't really understand it. Until I interviewed one of my my mother's best friends who had known my mother since they were infants together. And she told me that when my mom first gave birth to my sister, who was the older child, my sister was six pounds and my mother was terrified of her that she would break her. And so my grandmother, my mother's mother, got sick of watching my mother not be able to pick up this infant and scooped her up. And guess who my sister bonded with? Of course, the grandmother. Never connected with my mother, never in her life had the kind of relationship I did. When I was born, I was 10 pounds with a big mop of curly red hair. And my mother immediately, according to her friend, dubbed me her durable kid. Oh, my. So guess who bonded with whom? And guess what the byproduct of that is? Now, I never knew that story. And so once you know stories like that, you can start to build a narrative, right? Yes, So when we were doing, we were working together on your book, you have this marvelous detail that I have literally, I I literally think of it every single day because I come. Oh my. Yeah, every day. When I go to reach for my kitchen knife, which I now refer to as my kitchen knife. Right. Because it's the only knife I use. And why is that, David Leet, that I use this one kitchen knife? (laughs) Because that's what people do. And you're probably being reminded of my mother, who has had one knife for her entire life from 1965 until now. It's one knife. And my father, every six months or so, goes downstairs and he files off a little bit more to sharpen it. And it is so thin now it's it's maybe three quarters of an inch and it's very long and it's her one knife and everything that she ever made for us came through by with that knife and do you remember because i remember the moment when i said to you your mother has only one kitchen knife and you grew up to be a this famous cook and there was this dead silence on the phone like i don't think you saw it as the totemic detail. I did not. I did not see the connection because what it is, it's a connection about disconnection. She has this knife. It's the one knife. And here I am, you know, with more knives than I know what to do with. And so that idea that there was such a difference, I wasn't seeing as is as a connection. I saw it as as the difference. And now it has become incredibly totemic. And it's one of the things that I think it's like a tent pole in the book. So much of that sort of hangs on that tent pole. So sometimes we do our own reporting and sometimes we working with another human being have those details emphasized for us. Like you and I then, well, you did, but I said to you now, sculpt down this section so that that knife percolates up off the page. Exactly. 
And the reporting is, I think of reporting as being all in that. It's under the, all those two experiences, though, they're very different. Mine with my mm-hmm. mother's dear old friend and you with me, but they both live under the house of finding your details. In other words, you had put it in there as a, as a small phrase in the middle of a yeah. paragraph and we transposed it to a much higher key. Right. But it's about reporting. We gave it the attention that it deserved in order for using your term of basis for the reader to get to first base and then start moving and heading towards second base. It's just one of those things. Exactly. My mother was a very thoughtful kid, apparently, mm-hmm. and she, and this is this this is another detail. Her 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 other friend Janet told me that my mother's mother used to love to sew my mother's prom dresses, and mm-hmm. and she would put rosettes along the scoop neckline. And my mother used to carry in her evening bag a pair of cuticle scissors and a needle and thread. And on the way to the <laughs> dances, she would cut off the rosettes because she oh, didn't really? like them, <laughs> but she would sew them on on the way back home. That's a great detail. That says so much about your mom. Wow, right? Her considerate response yeah. to her mother, with whom she shared no aesthetic, mm-hmm. but from whom she would not like to have a break. You know what's interesting? That brings up a very important point. When I'm reading um, people's work, uh, uh, published and unpublished, I'm not a fan of when someone describes a parent or a person, and they say, my mother was very thrifty. She's the kind of person who would decide her own dress and how she wore it, because what you're doing is you're telling me. Mm -hmm. When you start telling me and getting me, I was right there in that car on the way to the dance, and I'm seeing your mother cutting those things off and then putting them back on, and Mm -hmm. that says so much. So we can really get a lot about character through action and through dialogue. Absolutely. And, but you weren't, when you were eight, you weren't standing there with a notebook unless you were a little weird. No, of course not. And that's what I call literary forensics. Because when I was doing my, my, I love that term, literary forensics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was dealing with my stuff, which is, of course, the bipolar and dealing with coming out of the closet and dealing with being Portuguese and not wanting to be Portuguese, there were so many things that I had to cram in there. And it's interesting because a lot of my readers have said that the first third of the book is so intensely visceral and sensory. Mm-hmm. And then they criticize it. I've gotten criticized a lot for this, that the middle part, there's not the sensory element. It's because all the sensory stuff turned inward on me Yeah, because I was trying to examine myself and figure it out. So when things were going outward for the first third of the book, especially, and also later, I had to rely upon I looked at journals. I read my journals, Mm -hmm. which I started keeping at about um, 17 years old, course photographs Mm -hmm. and medical records, psychiatric medical records and and, and school records. And then I started doing things, of course, newspaper articles, people do that too. But I started walking the halls of my junior high (gasps) in my 50s. And I went to, I don't remember where my locker, I don't remember my locker, but I know where it was in the hallway. Yeah. And then I went to Mrs. Fry's English class, which I have no idea what it is now. I went to the art room. I went to the library. So therefore, I could describe it more accurately. And I took (laughs) photographs. Oh, I love that. And I think one of the, the most amazing things for me was my mother used to wear this big smiley face. Remember in the 70s, smiley faces, have a, have, have a good day. I do, unfortunately, the, yes. The yellow with the, the big smile. She wore a big button on her purse. She had a purse that had a long strap and it kind of 
you know, was hip level, but it went over her shoulder and there was a big smiley face on it. And as I was going through a lot of photographs around the time where I went to um, the hospital, the children's hospital for evaluation, I realized when I saw the photograph, I was, rem I remembered that purse. I forgot entirely about it. So I was able to bring the juxtaposition of that purse that she hugged and on that smiley face while we have this very somber psychiatrist telling me that I have got unresolved rage and unresolved anger at my parents. When you're and a little kid. Yeah. And I was 13 or 13 mm -hmm. years old. Yeah. And the juxtaposition of that smiley face looking at me, I think, made it such a richer moment. Mm -hmm. And I would have forgotten entirely. So mm -hmm. we have to use everything at our disposal mm -hmm. in order to... To, to pull the story together. And of course, nowadays, it's so much easier because everyone's shooting everything on their phone. Right. Um, so you have a lot of that. Um, right. Back then, of course, I didn't, I, I barely had a new phone, uh, a cell phone. Absolutely. So I think it's interesting how we can, we can do it. And you know, I even say in the author's note of my book that when it was something kind of inconsequential, like the color of the inside of a restaurant or um, what someone was wearing, sometimes I just guessed based upon what I knew of the time, because uh, that those are inconsequential details, but they're details that sort of make up the error. So to say right. that you know somebody was wearing bell bottoms, you know, which I had suede bell bottoms, not suede bell, but uh -huh. no uh, brushed cotton bell bottoms, brushed cotton bell with a suede fringe <laughs> exactly. vest. That, yeah, come on, that bespeaks the seventies. It does, and, and I think those are the kind of things that as writers. It's our job to place a reader in the you know, kind of like the latitude and longitude of the story. And if you don't know what those coordinates are, you've got to go get yeah, them. Absolutely. And so it's not accuracy for what dress was I wearing that day. I always say to people, the accuracy really becomes important in terms of driving forward the argument. Yes. So in other words, I have to show you in my first book that the loss that I experienced of this woman was of such value mm -hmm. to me that I did crack up. And that's an important thing. So you have to care about her. So to use how many stories did I accumulate when I interviewed her friends? 150. How many did I use? Three. Yeah. But what those 150 did was corroborate and corroborate. They did for me. And then I had to choose which ones best mm -hmm. suit the argument going forward, which ones best illustrate the woman I'm trying to build yes. for you. And so there's some choice. And for me, with my mom, my mom is very fastidious and very neat and very put together. And I wanted to have that, again, a juxtaposition of a son falling apart in the presence of a woman who was very neatly put together and mm -hmm. um, somewhat concerned with her external appearance where I'm like mm -hmm. blubbering left and right. I didn't care. I just was desperate to get, to get help. And so those things like they do, they, they, they move the story forward and they do apply, you know, that they, they apply to your argument of your story. And at the same time, they do tell so much about the character. I think so. And people don't realize, I think, a lot of the time, especially when writing memoir, that you can do the kind of research that you just touched on. You can walk the hall of your junior high. Mm -hmm. You can look in your yearbook. You can call your sister and ask her, what was the name of the dog that bit me when I was a kid? Yep. You can look in a phone book. I found out doing research on the house in which I currently live that it was a speakeasy during Prohibition. <laughs> right. One of these days, I'll write about that. 
But in terms of what you can do, it's almost limitless. And the fact is you need that, especially in memoir, to make your argument. You don't need it because you don't want to just throw in every detail. This is not a a, a, a laundry basket not at all. which we just toss all the clothes, but you're building a story here and interviewing friends, talking to family. Um, Ancestry.com is kind of interesting in terms of addresses I've found for people. I'm there. getting into um, that. Yes. I have found that to be very fascinating. Yes. Yes. I think it's a great resource for memoir writers more and more every day. When I initially heard about genealogy and memoir writers, I was less interested because I don't want you to just tell me who begat whom. Exactly. But I am interested in you having a working knowledge of where your people are from. Exactly. Because there might be themes that run in your family that you don't realize. Right. My father lived all over New York, but it was poor New York, always in apartments that were very much tenements when he was a young man in New York. That was confirmed for me by seeing the census Mm -hmm. going through the 20th century. And that's confirming it's also characterization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting talking about, you know, not going all over the place with your book and, and, and literally visiting all the places you can do that. Sometimes you can overdo it. And I know when I was writing the prologue, the, the epilogue to my book, because it ends in a nice place, but I just felt that there wasn't this wrap up. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm done. So I was going to go and visit the movie theater where I had my first panic attack in Fall River, Massachusetts. I was going to visit Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I went to school at Carnegie Mellon. I was going to go back to Rochester Institute of Technology, all the different places that I talk about in the book, and therefore write about what it felt like to be an adult going back to these places after all the trauma was over. And that, I thought, first of all, was an expensive proposition. And I thought, is that really going to finish the story. And so what I did instead, instead of visiting places, I visited myself in the past. My 11-year-old self, I visited Interesting. and saw, you know, and saw myself pacing outside of the movie theater, which I did, and and trying to communicate. And then I saw myself later uh, when I was 21 and having panic attacks and, and being very depressed. And then another time when I was close to wanting to kill myself and visiting and saying, okay, it's going to be okay. And then following myself and showing the growth till finally my younger self understands what I've been trying to say all along. So it was interesting to visit myself. That's so generous of you to share with people. I love that. Instead and of I places. think you're right. Because I hear, trust me, I talk to writers, you know, I, I talk to many writers every month in the in my work, mm-hmm. working one-on-one with writers. And people come up with these, first of all, they've got these grand schemes to build an office. And I would say, stop it right now. <laughs> Just find a corner of your dining room table and get to work. Let's stop putting off the work. And then they start with their grand scheme of where they're going to go. Yeah. And you know, this isn't a literary pilgrimage, your life. You do have, it's just like Dorothy and her red shoes. You have on you right now, everything you need everything to, to you know, need. right? Yes. And if you can visit that, and if there are some visual cues of that, childhood photos are terrific, but really try reading them. Yeah. I mean, don't just show them to me. Mm-hmm. You've got to read them for what the content is. Yeah. And it makes a big difference. So I'm so glad you had that conversion that you didn't feel you had to make that trip because those trips can be very hollow for a lot of people. I think so because it would cast be about you out of your work. visiting a place and I'd be writing about a place when the whole book was about coming to accept myself. So that's mm-hmm. why I decided to turn inward and visit myself and finally wrap up. So it, it was very, it was a very 
powerful piece of the book to write. I remember when I was done and I finished it, I was weeping and weeping and weeping. Of course you were. Because it was just over. And as you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks after I finished the book, anytime we would talk about it, I just started, I fell apart. I couldn't, or if I read it in class, I just could not hold it together. Well, that makes perfect sense because you, what you did was you integrated. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I had the great good fortune of watching a man integrate what he wanted to be with what he knew, with what he was. I mean, there was a remarkable process that I got to witness and right. it was one of integration. And you can. I mean, on that topic, though, of visiting, I have to say I wrote a book that's called The Roots of Desire. Right. And it's the history of red hair. Red hair and I yeah. traveled all over the place looking at art and dance and culture and all of these things. But I also traveled to some of my dead family that I never knew. I traveled to some of their spots. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I went to the dock that my grandmother, my red-haired grandmother stood on in uh, in England, in Liverpool, from where she took off by herself with no one else in her family with her to come to America. And that was impressive because I did some research and that the view that she had as she left behind the dock at Liverpool was the view that I was seeing that day. Right. And to be able to see what she saw and to know that she never saw it again was remarkably poignant for me. Did it inform the book? I'd like to think it did. Um, But it's not for me to appropriate her story, Mm -hmm. but it was for me to try to see what I could gather there. That one was a a flyer. You know, when I announced to my family I was going off on this two-week trip by myself through these spots in England, I think my husband, who's a newspaper editor, was deeply suspicious that I wouldn't find anything. I found a great deal. I found a sensibility. I found, for instance, however, why it is that my grandfather, who was left in charge of feeding us when we were kids mm-hmm. and my parents were both working, mm-hmm. my English grandfather, oh, what a story he is, <laughs> made me bake bean sandwiches every morning. Now, can you imagine <laughs> when you get to third grade cafeteria in a New York City public school and you go to take your sandwich out and all the beans fall onto the table, <laughs> how much fun the little kids make of you, right? And then all the bodily function noises oh, that used to follow me down yes. the hall and they'd make fun of me. Yeah. Well, I never understood this and I totally blocked it. Not even therapy on on the earth. Till I went to Southport, England. And there on the menu, as I was sitting, having my lunch by myself was beans and toast. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And so he was trying to recreate something for himself. Exactly. And you were there to experience it, but that was really about him. Yes. And, And now I understand it and now I love it. But at the time in third grade, I didn't love it so much. Mm-hmm. I have to not. say. That's like uh, me, eating, me eating octopus when I was six years old. What kid I... wants to eat octopus? But, you know, we had to eat it. And But yeah, visiting is interesting because in my book, I go back and I visit for the very first time and only time the house my father was born in and raised in, in a very, very small town on the island of San Miguel in the Azores. It's like about a thousand this miles. This story always makes me cry. I know way. because it's seeing the house because I had heard of what the house looked like, the dirt floors, the rock walls, the wall oven. And where my grandmother made everything in that wall oven. And then upstairs was nothing more than a a loft where all five kids slept. And then I knocked on the door and it was a cousin of a cousin, cousin of my grandfather, I believe. And so she finally realized who we were. And so she invited us in and there was nothing that looked remotely familiar to what I had always imagined. And I thought that, oh gosh, you know, maybe my dad was off or maybe I didn't understand it. 
And then, so I said to her, I said, is the wall oven still here? And I'll never forget. She looked so proud. And she said, seen. And she had Alan and me move the stove and also this big metal um, sheet that was behind the stove. And in the wall was the wall oven, which still had char mm. marks and still had wood in it. And it mm. was the connection to my grandmother, my father's mother, and the connection to these people who all of my life I thought were just were, were ignorant immigrants. I suddenly realized mm -hmm. the courage it took, the intense, immense courage it took to leave that place, never turn back with little, if any, money in your pocket and start again in a new country where you don't know the language. And I thought, wow. And it gave me such respect. So sometimes that reconnecting with something like you did with your grandmother, sit, standing there on the mm -hmm. dock from where she, she left to come to America and being in my father's house, is it closes a circle. And I have to say, I think when you do any kind of memoir writing, whether it be an essay or a blog post or a book, you are forever changed. You're not the same person who started it. Absolutely. The single greatest portal to self-understanding is writing about your life and going in there and really getting it. And while in the first couple of drafts, it may, re it may resemble nothing more than a series of Polaroids. In other words, you just, you know, give us this image, this image, this image. As you move through right. it, you will learn about yourselves. This is what I always say to my students is, be prepared because your argument is going to change as you write your book. It better because you're about to learn a great deal about yeah. yourself. And while you thought this was a story of mercy, it's really about the complexities of forgiveness. Right. And this is a very different story than just granting somebody mercy. It's about how damn difficult it is to do mm -hmm. so. And the steps along the way to that are what you go discover if you do a little reporting, mm -hmm. you know, remembering what how hurt you were or remembering how damaged you were by somebody else's behavior can be ascertained by talking to friends. You know, how much, how crazy was I in my yeah, 20s? Exactly. You might ask somebody. Now, that being said, you've got to remember to take what some people say with a grain of salt. Um, I was at a dinner party the other re recently. My sister was there and I was telling a story and suddenly she says, none of that is true. <laughs> none of that happened. <laughs> I was there. I and saw it. It happened. Yeah. Right. I said to her, you know, and this is what I always say to the memoir writers with whom I work, from that moment on, you are allowed to say, or from this moment on, you're allowed to say to anyone who says that, you're right. That's not the way it happened to you. That's the way it happened to me. But she and I have this standing joke that my second grade best friend was is imaginary, and he's not imaginary. I could drive you to his house. But she will never relent on this topic. And one of these days I'm going to stuff her in the car and drive him to drive to his house and, and you know, reacquaint myself with him. But it's, it is a fascinating world as we try to gather our details mm -hmm. for our stories. And honestly, in the years, many, many years, more than 20 years of working with writers, I have rarely been as touched as I was by your mother's yeah, life. That's wonderful. And Thank you. How deeply it led, but it also, I mean, not to beat this metaphor to death, it allowed us to cut through what the extraneous aspects of that story and pare down to this glorious thing, which is also the same story in the, in the wall stove, mm -hmm. which is that you did begin to find your true home when you recognized what food and cooking meant That's to you. True. And when you reclaimed that and then repurposed it to be David Leet's right. cooking and not 
the cooking that was just done in that wall stove or the cooking that was just done with your mother with that one knife. There's a there's an act three to that story, and it's what David Lee did with that cooking. And that's when those details are recalled by the mm-hmm. reader, and it becomes the two plus two plus two equals this. Yeah. This current writer who has inhabited his Portuguese self, inhabited his bipolar self, inhabited his gay self, all through the ability to say, I am a cook. And all of that came back to our initial point. It all comes from that literary forensics of however you get to that point, whether it be through photographs, interviews of friends, uh, records, medical records, walking through schools, walking through towns, all that is what builds and gets you as a writer. 